Um, today what we're going to do is a little different than usual. Today what we're going to do is uh, instead of having the Lord's Supper introduction and then partaking of the Lord's Supper and then singing a few more songs and then moving into the time of the sermon, we're actually going to spend an extended period of time today focusing on the cross before taking the Lord's Supper. So this is the time of both the Lord's Supper introduction as well as the sermon. Today we're merging them into one thing. So I would like to ask that you please open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 18. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about irony. Irony is defined as the state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. I remember the first time I really kind of figured out what irony is on an experiential level. I was 13 years old and I had traveled across the country to Mississippi with my older sister for a wedding. And the morning of the wedding, we were driving towards the event, and it was the first time I had ever heard this song come on the radio, a song by Alanis Morissette, where she sings, it sounds like rain on a wedding day. Isn't it ironic? And as we heard that song piercing through the speakers of that little Acura legend, we were driving in the direction of the Gulf Coast and watching this massive black cloud billowing forward into our direction and I couldn't help but chuckle. It is like rain on a wedding day. And when I think of weddings, you should uh, think of the photos of the wedding and how everything is beautiful and picturesque and delightful and everyone is dressed well. And, and, and usually you try to find a spot where it's nice and dry and everyone looks like they are at least clean. Well, the wedding that we attended could well be described as an administrative apocalypse. It was an organizational catastrophe and a wedding planner's worst nightmare. There's many mistakes that played out, falling like dominoes one after another, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that nearly everything that could possibly go wrong did. Uh, not the least of these debacles was when it came time for the exchange of the rings. And when they got there, it was the, this kind of move right here, like not sure where they are. And so the groom left the wedding mid-ceremony to go back out to his car and then back to his apartment to search for them and in the midst of doing so, ran through the rain, that torrential downpour, on four occasions, to the car, to the house, to the house, from the house to the car, and back, and he came back in sopping wet. And so when it came time to finally say, you may kiss the bride, he was completely drenched. I never thought I would say this, but Alanis Morissette is right. Uh, <laughs> irony is the state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. Irony rightfully defies expectations because it is the antithesis of what is fitting or of what is normal. Irony is surprising because ironic events are atypical, unusual, unexpected, unforeseen, and possibly even unprecedented. Today, we are going to remember the crucifixion of the Lord. And as we prepare our hearts now for the Lord's Supper, I would like to draw your attention to several ironic events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. However, unlike the story that I just shared with you, these events, they hold no humor, and they are not for the sake of amusement. These are bizarre twists of universal realities. These ironic events should often offend every sensibility of justice and morality and virtue that we have. Today, we examine the scandalous nature of the cross. Now, before we consider these events... I ask that you join me as we go before the Father and seek His guidance this morning. 
Our Father in heaven, we come now asking for your blessing and your favor in this service. We desire to honor you. We want to glorify you by remembering the perfect sacrifice of your Son, and we want to focus intently in on the most tragic but most beautiful event in history, the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. So please, Lord, help us to have ears to hear and guard our thoughts that they might not wander. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a fresh and new awareness of the glories of Calvary. Lord, I just pray that you would give me clarity and passion, compassion as I preach. Help me to serve well. And for those who don't know you in a saving way, I pray, Lord, that you would use this to open hearts and minds to receive truth. And for those that do know you, I pray, Lord, that this would be a time of remembering well, as we are told to do every time we come to the Lord's table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We want to consider now several aspects of irony that we find here in the last moments of Jesus' life. Let's first consider the fact of what it looks like that Jesus was judged. Every human being is born with an innate sense of justice. Although people's sensibilities of justice can be heightened or they can be diminished, we all have a very real sense of justice, and this is never more clear than when somebody hurts you. Now, you might not be offended on behalf of someone else, but when it comes to your own personal experience, as soon as somebody takes something away from you or harms you in some way, well, then you will naturally cry out for justice. You're going to desire retribution. You want to find restitution. Courtrooms are overflowing with people who are seeking justice who will agree that the offender must pay. And a just judge is one that always punishes the guilty and that always frees the innocent. That's what justice is. And Jesus often spoke about his role as the judge. For example, in John 5.22, he said, The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. And he adds a few verses later in verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. In other words, he is the judge by very nature of his identity. He does what he does because he is who he is. However, Jesus is not like the judges of this world. He is not ignorant of anything. He is fully aware of all of the details. Nobody has to convince him of the proof. He can never make a mistake and he can never be bought off. He is not willing to pardon the guilty, and he will always pardon the innocent. He says as much in John chapter 30, 5, verse 30, when he says, I judge, and my judgment is just. He is the just judge. Now bring that info with you into John 18, as we now consider that Jesus is going before an unjust judge. Jesus has been awake all night. And after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he has been paraded back and forth between kangaroo courts and false trials, and he is now being handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor of the region of Judea. So please follow along as I begin reading in John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we have delivered him over to you? So first of all, notice the irony that they themselves, who are doing something incredibly wicked, are fearful to enter into a Gentile's property because that could defile them, that they are not worried about handing over the Son of God himself to be, to be killed. 
And also notice that the line of reasoning that they give to Pilate, notice how ridiculous this is. A transfer of a prisoner from one branch of authority to another is only ever acceptable if both parties agree that a crime has been committed. So imagine that you have been arrested by the police, and the police take you to the FBI, and they say, we demand that you incarcerate this individual. And the FBI asks, well, what did he do? And the police response to them is, do you really think we would arrest him if he didn't do anything? That's not a good answer. That's not how it works. There must be a crime. There must be an accusation. And here we see, when they hand him over to Pilate, there is none. So at the very outset, Pilate responds the way that we would expect a judge should respond. He refuses custody. Look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Notice, Pilate is not given a good reason to accept this prisoner, but now he realizes, oh, this is more serious than I thought. They're not just looking for someone to go to jail. They want someone to die. And now, as he's considering this, instead of saying what he should have said, oh, you know what, guys, that's insane, goodbye, and closing the door. Instead, Pilate welcomed Jesus into custody, and, it, and now nothing has changed but he accepts the prisoners. The Jews did not outline any breach of the law. Rather, they simply said they want Jesus dead and are unable to execute him without Pilate being the one who approves. So Pilate, being a politician with a desire to keep peace between himself and the religious rulers, well, for my job's sake, I'll accept him. That is an unjust judge. We are already seeing indications that Pilate is by far not the kind of judge that you would want. And Pilate begins to question Jesus in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own, notion and chief, uh, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness about the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? A surefire sign of a judge that cannot judge well is one that cannot determine what is and is not truth. A judge who has embraced relativism, that kind of judge cannot be just. A judge must have guiding principles. They must know what is right and what is wrong in order to inform his or her decisions. And once again, we are seeing strong indicators that Pilate is not a just judge. So continue reading on in verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. In a court of law, that statement should be the last thing anybody hears in the courtroom, right? Not guilty, gavel bang. It's over. Everyone walks out of the room. This should have been the end of the trial, if Pilate was a just judge. But Pilate continued, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
So here we see Pilate in an act of cowardice and indecisive leadership, hands his own authority, he gives his job over to the people. It is Pilate's responsibility to acquit or to condemn, but instead he unjustly hands over all decision-making to a violent mob. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that Pilate did not leave that question open-ended. He specifically asked the crowd if they would prefer to have Jesus or Barabbas. Here we find another great irony. If you had to pick between these two people to be your neighbor, everyone knows exactly which one you would choose. The book of Matthew refers to Barabbas as a notorious prisoner, and the word used for robber here in John denotes, denotes a man of great violence. Luke further details Barabbas' crimes by noting that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. That's not the kind of guy that you want hanging out in your community. Jesus or Barabbas? Give me Jesus every time. There is no doubt that Pilate thought this was a brilliant move. In his mind, he was giving the people a choice that they could not possibly choose Barabbas. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that he was expecting the people to select Barabbas because he knew that Jesus was nonviolent and, as far as he could tell, completely innocent. But ironically, the name Barabbas means son of the Father. So standing before the people was a holy, righteous, eternal son of the Father and notorious murderer named the son of the Father. And Pilate thought to himself, I'm going to make them choose to choose one of these sons of the Father. And I'm, I'm believing that they're going to accept Jesus back into their society rather than that guy. But his plan backfired in dramatic fashion, as we see in verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Do you see the irony here? Jesus, the just judge, stood condemned by an unjust judge and an unjust mob. And when we, the readers, look at this, we can see the absolute absurdity of the innocent judge of the universe standing there falsely condemned. And as we continue reading through Jesus' experience with Pilate, we're going to see more clearly this troubling irony of the unjust judge. But as we move forward, I would also like to make clear that there's some other thread of irony that I want you to see here, and that is that Jesus is the King of Kings. Back in verse 36, Jesus admits that he is a king and that he is the king not only of himself but of a kingdom. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus has spent years of his ministry preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He has the ability to explain this because he is the king of heaven, so he can tell everybody exactly what it's like and what its regulations are. Earthly kingdoms, however, are all defined by their limitations. When you begin learning about other countries, you begin by learning their borders. Empires rise and empires fall. Just recently, we were staying with some friends in South Carolina, and they have globes all over their house, and I spent some time just kind of spinning them around and looking at them, and it's interesting that even over the short period of time that these globes have been being produced, many of those borders have changed. The way that we determine what a country is, a nation is, a people is, is different than what Jesus is teaching here. Empires rise and fall. They have a beginning and end. They expand with conquest, and they contract with military defeat. And if a nation ever has a good ruler, eventually that ruler will die and he will be replaced and eventually be replaced with a poor ruler. The kingdoms are defined by limitations, whether they are economical or sociological or geographical or in terms of longevity. But the kingdom of heaven, that kingdom has no limitations because that kingdom has a king who has none of these limitations. Jesus is the reigning king with no limits. 
He will rule forever over a kingdom that has no borders or boundaries, and he cares for his people with impeccable honor and indefinite and infinite kindness, and he will never stop being king. Jesus truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords, yet we read that none of these people are bowing the knee to Jesus. Pilate is not bowing the knee to Jesus. The Pharisees are not bowing the knee to Jesus. No one in this courtroom is bowing the knee to Jesus. This is where we find instead what occurs with Jesus. Follow along starting in John 19 verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus out and had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. I would like to draw your attention to the two articles of clothing that are mentioned above. The crown of thorns was twisted together and placed on his head as a way to ridicule him. The crown represents authority, and they placed this crown on his head instead of bowing down to him in allegiance, and they should have. They should have declared their fealty and allegiance to him. Instead, they beat him with their fists. And many people throughout history have worn crowns, and many people have had positions of authority. We have all sought to accumulate some kind of authority to ourselves. Nobody likes to be the guy on the bottom rung of the job or the bottom end of the totem pole. We all want some kind of authority in life. But in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, it tells us that we eventually are going to give up any crowns that we have gained. He says, they have cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Any kind of authority, any kind of power, any kind of crown that you have ever gained or achieved, you're going to lay it all down at the feet of the king, because he is the only one who has the right to rule and reign forever. And so we will all gladly and happily lay down our authority for an eternal subservience to the king. In John's vision of the Revelation, we see the ruling Jesus crowned with many crowns. Revelation 19, 11 through 12 says, Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, which means crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. You should also take note here of the robe. Robes like this one were a sign of power. They were a sign, especially a purple robe was a sign of significance and importance and power and authority. And they were very expensive and could only be worn by someone with great resources. And these men who were mocking Jesus were seeking to dishonor and disgrace him by placing this robe around him. But this would not be the first or the last time that Jesus would ever wear a robe. Back in Isaiah 6, Isaiah the prophet has a vision of heaven, and he says, there he saw Jesus sitting on the throne. It says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is a way to express the unparalleled majesty of King Jesus. He is clothed in a robe we find in Revelation 19, 13, and 16 once again. When he returns to the earth, he's going to be a, wearing a robe that it says, quote, is a robe dipped in blood, and by the name he is called the Word of God, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Yet sandwiched between these two magisterial robes worn by King Jesus, we see him instead being used as a doll for dress-up by the torment of his adversaries. The crown and the robe were nothing more than a hilarious joke to these soldiers. But the irony continues to build as Jesus gets nearer and nearer to the cross. Follow along in John 19, 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Once again, the irony of this man who was supposed to set free the innocent is saying, go ahead and kill him if you want. I don't see him committing any wrong. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. I would ask you the question, where, where exactly do you see that the Son of God cannot call himself the Son of God? Well, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin." Jesus points out this irony to Pilate. You would not have the position of authority that you're currently wielding unless it had been given to you by my Father. Like, I'm the one who's really in charge here, Pilate, not you. And as these two men are standing there looking at one another eye to eye, Pilate thinks that he's in charge. He's essentially asking the question, do you know who I am? And Jesus is saying, you don't know who I am. Jesus is saying, this is ironic, you would not have this position of authority at all. You would not be able to abuse your power unless my Father had given you this position. So, verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The brutal irony reaches a fever pitch at this moment. Earlier, the people were faced with the decision, would you prefer the release of an innocent man or a murderer? Well, now the crowd is screaming, we want Caesar to be our king. We want that man that we have been seeking so long to separate ourselves from and emancipate ourselves from. We have fought so hard not to be under the rule of Rome, and now we are declaring that man is our king. I wonder how they felt about that statement 37 years later when Caesar came and destroyed Jerusalem and absolutely, utterly decimated the temple. The Jews hated the Romans, and they felt utterly oppressed by the Romans. They had spent decades trying to free themselves and gain more autonomy from Rome, yet when the choice came between a loving, righteous, holy king and an unjust, wicked Roman ruler, they declared, we have no king but Caesar. 
This makes me think of God's word to Samuel when the nation of Israel was demanding their first king. And God says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, you might look at this and say, well, that's ironic. These Pharisees and religious rulers of Israel were so radically opposed to the notion of Jesus leading them that they were willing to kill him and declare fealty to an evil leader. Isn't it ironic? Yes. But do you not realize that that's exactly what every unbeliever in the world does every single day? I will not have that man to rule over me, and they choose rulers of this world whether that be themselves, believing themselves to be their authority, or whether they look to political leaders, or whether they look to others in their life to be their authority, they believe there is some other person to whom they must declare fealty, and they are always choosing poorly. Isn't it ironic also that they who wanted nothing more than to destroy this man so that their knee would never bow to him as king, every last one of them will eventually acknowledge that he is king, and eventually their knees will bow. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 puts it this way, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Continue following along as we look at John 19, 16. Here's the outcome. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It was commonplace for the Romans to place a sign above the head of a crucified individual. Uh, this was considered a warning to anyone else who might consider making, himself, uh, making the same mistakes or committing the same crimes. And the sign above the head of Jesus was completely accurate, But it was not exhaustively accurate. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but his reign and his authority does not stop there. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As we continue reading, I would like to highlight another major irony in the text. Notice the connection of clothing and nakedness to shame. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world, and Adam and Eve, of course you know, broke God's law, and God told them that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, when Adam and Eve were being removed from the Garden of Eden, God clothed them. In Genesis chapter 3, 21, it says, And the Lord God made Adam and Eve uh, and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In the Bible, nakedness and shame are intricately connected. Adam and Eve felt shame because they realized for the very first time that they were naked. Of course, they were always naked, but they didn't have any concept of shame. But when sin comes in, so does shame. 
and yet God spilled the blood of an innocent animal to cover their shame. Please turn your attention back to John 19, starting verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it and see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Do you see the irony here? The God who covered the shame of sinners' nakedness has now been stripped. The one who the Bible says has been arrayed in eternal glory was publicly shamed. His covering was divided by gamblers. And here you see the love of God and the hatred of mankind clearly juxtaposed. But do you know what the greatest irony is? Read on with me, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. What is the most ironic thing? Not only in this verse or in this chapter or in the Bible, the most ironic thing that has ever occurred in the history of the universe, the most ironic thing that will ever happen in the entire existence of the universe is that the God of life, the giver of life, the creator of life, sent his son to die. Why? Was he tricked? Did Jesus make a mistake in his chess game against the Pharisees? Did the devil win? No. Jesus had said in John chapter 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. Well, why would he do that? Why would he lay down his life? Well, he answers that question in John chapter 10, verse 15. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What's ironic about that is that Jesus, the holy Son of God, The sinless Son of God, the pure Son of God, died to save sinners. That is the most shocking truth imaginable. That which is pure came to make us pure. He did so because God demands that we be pure in order to be with Him, in order to be in heaven forever. But we have all fallen short of His requirements. None of us is pure. And the good news of the gospel is that God provides what God demands, The plan of salvation for God to receive divine self-satisfaction by way of divine self-substitution. When we come to the table in a few moments, you are called to remember this. You are called to remember Jesus. You are called to remember the cross. You are called to remember that He died to give you life. That He took on your sin so that you might be made pure. When we come together, we are graciously admonished to do this in remembrance of of Him. Not just the one who died, but the one who came again to life for us and is ruling and reigning as our King today. This is not a funeral service. We are not here mourning the death of a great leader. We are here to celebrate the sacrifice of one who is still alive for us today. So today, when we come to the table, the bread and the juice reminds us of the incredible, mind-boggling love and the ironic, incredible passion of Jesus that He would come and be our substitute. 
that he would come and die for his people, that he would suffer in our place, that he would take our sin in his body and pay for it and declare, it is finished. Amen. I would ask that the ushers go ahead and come forward and begin passing out the elements now to the congregation. I would say to you, if you are here and you are not saved, I would ask that you please don't leave without talking to somebody that you've seen up here on the stage about what it means to know and follow Jesus Christ. And I just want to share with you a brief story of something that happened a couple of years ago. Uh, There was a woman who attended uh, a service at our church, and as I was teaching, um, this woman heard the introduction to the Lord's Supper. And she heard me say, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, please do not partake, because the Word says to do so would mean that you would be eating and drinking judgment unto yourself. Please observe with your eyes what we are doing. Consider the gospel, but please do not partake. And this woman got up in the middle of the service. She left her family and went and sat in the car, and she was angry. And she said, who does that man think he is to tell me I can't take of the Lord's Supper if I want to? By God's grace, a few weeks later, the Lord saved her. A few weeks later, she understood the gospel. A few weeks later, she realized what it meant that Jesus had died for her sins and brought her into the kingdom. She became a believer in Jesus Christ, and then moving forward, she always did partake, and she still continues where she lives now in another state, continuing to follow the Lord and worship in a faithful church. And I would ask of you today that if you are not a believer, I would ask that you don't get angry for not partaking, but I would ask instead that you consider what it means. Consider the meaning of these elements, the the bread and the juice, that Jesus would die for sin and give His body and His blood so that sinners might be saved. If you are a sinner in need of salvation, it's available. Jesus is there to save. He will save any who calls out to Him in repentance. The Bible just says you must believe that at the cross He died for your sin and that you will be saved. All who call in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. So if that's you today, I pray that you will indeed come to Him. What a joy that would be. For those who do not know the Lord, I would ask that once you receive the bread and the juice, that you just hold on to those things for a bit. We're all going to partake together. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Thank you. Now notice that in church planting, when you first go share the gospel with others and you begin a church, there are many things that don't exist quite yet. There are traditions that aren't there yet. There's, there's aspects of the, the church that don't quite make it at the very beginning. But the most important things all are necessary at the outset. And he says, when I came to you, I delivered something to you that was significant. I delivered to you the information you need to know about the Lord's Supper. That The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, today, I know this kind of shook up the service a little bit, moving pieces around and all of that. But I wanted to do this because I wanted to take time to really focus our attention. Sometimes in the church service, when we come to the Lord's table, it moves so fast. We're up here for a minute, we say a couple of words, we read the verse, and then we go down, and it's like a small piece of the service. But he says to do this in remembrance of me. So today, I ask you to remember him. These things that we have considered, these aspects of the crucifixion, this love of Jesus who died for your sins. Remember Him. 
Remember not only that He died for them, but remember how that salvation has come to you. Remember how it is that you heard the gospel. Remember it. who told you about Christ. Every single one of us in here has received the message from someone. And remember what that was like when you first believed. Now, if you believed as a small child, perhaps you can't remember that transition. But for most of those in the room, when you were saved, you have a cognitive and clear awareness of what you were being saved from and what you were being saved to. And today we are called, as we partake together, to remember. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Earlier, I mentioned to you about this woman who came to our church. I had no idea that the Lord had used that in a way to save her. I didn't know that until about a year after she was saved. She came to our home and shared with us her testimony and explained that it was actually during the Lord's Supper that the Lord began to convict her and she began to experience kind of a frustration about the fact that she was not indeed saved. Do you know that you, church, were declaring the Lord's death to her? Do you know that as we do this as a people, people know very little about what happens inside the walls of a church, and they're very confused about these things, but they do know that we partake of the Lord's table together. And in doing so, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And so I would ask that as we do this, we remember and we declare together. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. Of course, we know that this element is not mystical, it's magical, not magical, it's just bread, symbolically representing Christ's body. If you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, I would ask that we partake together now. He also took the cup representative of His blood. The picture of of sacrifice was always that one would shed their blood for another. If you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ and you have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, I I would ask that we remember, we proclaim as we partake together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, our substitute, our king, our just judge, our righteous redeemer, our covering. I thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus, your son, to die. And Lord, now as we have remembered and proclaimed, I pray that you would give great joy to all who believe. And I pray that you would give faith to those who do not yet. Lord, now as we bring this time to a close, I ask that it would be one of not only temporary and momentary remembrance, but that you would use this to spur us forward in joy to follow Christ throughout the rest of our week, that we might be honorable representatives of Jesus moving forward. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.